0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective. This is the Theology Central Podcast, making theology central. Good morning everyone. It is Wednesday, August the 30th, 2023. It is currently 10:33 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Well, I I kind of made you think that we were crossing the finish line yesterday, right? I mean, I know if if you haven't been with us, we have been involved in a marathon sprint. I know that maybe those two words don't really go together, but that's what it is. It was a marathon, but it was a sprint to the finish line to finish the book of Jeremiah before the end of August. And we were utilizing the audio, uh, from Dr. J. Vernon McGee as he tried to cover from like basically we went from like chapter 30 to chapter 52 in a very short amount of time. He had to skip around a lot, but we did get to chapter 52 and we did finish his, you know, discussion and his overview of it. And of course we added our own thoughts, our own perspective. We, we agreed, we disagreed. I I think it was a, I think it was a good, you know, sprint to the end. And so you you would think, well, mate, well, I mean, that was it. You, we crossed the finish line. But I I I stated that I, I don't think that's the way I want to end this. So we still have time, right? I mean it's August the 30th. So we have all day today and this evening, and then we have all day tomorrow, all the way till midnight tomorrow. And I'm gonna utilize the rest of this time to do whatever I think we should do in the book of Jeremiah, right? To just cover different things, maybe go back. I don't know. Answer questions. Um, if people have something that they, they still don't understand, we just, we're just going to utilize the time to try to bring this summer study of Jeremiah to some kind of satisfying conclusion. I, I mean, to be honest with you, I don't think the book really has a satisfying conclusion. I'm still perplexed in how the book of Jeremiah ends. I mean, I, 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 I was hoping uh, I w- a lot of you would be like, man, the book just ends. Like what, what, what kind of ending is that? And why does it end with that? It is so, I, I mean, look at, look, you don't, don't take my word for it. Go to Jeremiah chapter 52. Doesn't it end weird? Jeremiah chapter fifty two. Now we get this kind of list of all the the different people taken into captive by Nebuchadnezzar. I'll just kind of go back. Uh, I mean, there's we could read a lot here, but I'll just kind of jump down to verse. Well, verse. Uh, we'll go to verse twenty six. Jeremiah fifty two twenty six. Jeremiah chapter fifty two verse twenty six. So Neba. Uh, so Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon to Riblah. And the king of Babylon smote them and put them to death in Riblah, and the land of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away captive out of his own land. This is the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive in the seventh year, 3,000 Jews and 3 and 20, all right? Uh, in the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem 830 and two persons. In the three and 20th year of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebazar Adon, the captain of the guard, carried away captive for the Jews 740 and five persons. All the persons were 4,600. And it came to pass, okay, we'll stop right there. So we, we have just all of these people being carried away. All these people being carried away. All these different reports of people being carried away. Away and given a number. Well, that's not hopeful. That's not that's. It's just discouraging. It's depressing because it's been really the theme of the book over and over and over. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And then there's a lot of do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. The people don't obey. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Coming. We've got corrupt civil leaders. We got corrupt religious leaders. It's just a depressing. Tell, of course, it's a major picture of human depravity, but I mean, we end with just all of these people being taken into captivity, all of these different accounts of people being taken into captivity and the number. And then the, the, I mean, if that, that would already be a depressing way to end the book, right? You, you think it would end with all of those wonderful promises given in the book, all of those, I will, where God, well, God uh, throughout the book has been telling them, you do this, don't do this, you do this, don't do this. They fail. they fail. they fail. they fell. And then finally, in the book of Jeremiah, God steps up and says, wait, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will do this. You think in a way it would end with a... A summary of all the I wills that God is going to do for them. But it doesn't. It ends in the most depressing way. These people were taken captive. These people were taken captive. These people were taken captive. And then it ends with this absolutely strange account. Like I'm still perplexed by this. Jeremiah 52 starting in verse 31. I look, I don't uh, Dr. J. Vernon McGee didn't seem to have a good answer. Maybe someone out there has a great answer to why the book ends this way. But here we go, and it came to pass, this is Jeremiah 52, 31, and it came to pass in the seven and thirtieth year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, All right, So it comes to pass in the seven and thirtieth year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and the twelfth month, and the five and twentieth month of the month that evil Moradot, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him forth out of prison. Now, we have this strange story of Jehoiachin. Now, remember Jehoiachin, known by a number of names, right? And we know Jehoiachin is is in a sense cursed that no one from his line is going to sit on the throne of David. We have all of the issues of how, why does he show up in the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. And we've got Dr. J. Vernon McGee's explanation is that, that genealogy goes through Joseph. Jesus, Jesus doesn't get the throne through Joseph. He gets it through Mary. Okay. And then Mary, Joachim is not in that line. Okay. We, we, we can, we can look at all of that, but it's just a strange story that, that, hey, he's the cursed one. He's the one who's not supposed to sit on the throne of David. And then look at what happens. Hey, he, he's been removed and no one from his line. And look what happens. He's in the prison. He's removed from the prison, right? And spake and 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 this king speaks kindly unto him and sets his throne above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon. Jehoiachin is then placed upon the throne in Babylon. And changed his prison garments and he did continually eat bread before him all the days of his life. And for his diet there was a continual diet given him of the king of Babylon, every day a portion until the day of his death. All the days of his life. It ends with this, hey, earlier in the book, you're cursed. Everyone, I mean, no one from your line is going to sit on the throne of David. And then it ends with, hey, the king of of Babylon is like, hey, no, no, come up out of prison. Hey, I'm going to be nice to you. I'm going to put your throne above all the other thrones. Hey, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to take care of you. And, And he dies in Babylon. And that's how the book ends what is that i do not have i do not have a a good i i i'm still processing it if any of you've got some great insight if you've if you've been searching all the commentaries and you've got some great succinct summary of what is going on here why this is here I would love I would love to hear it. I would love to hear it. And and maybe we will explore that a little bit more. But here was my thinking today. Because it ends in such a negative, 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 negative way, at least for this morning, I thought we would go back to that beautiful chapter, chapter 31, right? That beautiful, beautiful chapter. One of the chapters that I think is the most important chapter of all right? One of the most important chapters of all, Jeremiah chapter 31. Uh, So here's what I would challenge you to do. I've already challenged you to go through Jeremiah 31 and find the 15 I wills. I've challenged you to read Jeremiah 31 10 times. Those challenges remain in place, but please consider it. But I would add one more challenge here. I would also challenge you to go back to chapter 29, and read 29 maybe five times. And the reason why is because in Jeremiah 29, we have some famous verses that are always ripped out of context. So you need to know those verses in their full context. So read the whole chapter five times. So make sure Jeremiah 29, you know it, you know the context. So the next time someone rips it out of context, You can challenge them with the context. And then Jeremiah 31, just because, I mean, in some ways it's a controversial chapter because people interpret it through the lens of their own eschatology. And to me, it's insane the way some people handle it. But I think it's so important, especially the way the book ends. It ends with, hey, these people went into captivity. These people went into captivity. These people went into captivity. Oh, and Jehoiachin, you know, that cursed one. Well, hey, he, he's he's on the throne in Babylon. What happened? What what's going on? And then it just ends. There's no explanation. It just ends. And then that's the end of the book. There's no hope. There's not even a glimmer of hope at the end of the book. There's no. It is the it's the end. Now we do realize that the book is not in chronological order, but it just ends. So odd. It just it, it almost like well wait where's. Wait, what happened? I've read plenty of novels. Have you read those novels where you get to the end and you're like, wait, wait, there, wait, is there another part? Wait, wait, what? Did someone rip out the last chapter? And I know sometimes authors, human authors, have their reasons for doing that, right? Now, obviously, we believe this is put together by God, all scriptures given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for the you know instruction of righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped unto all good work, right? I I, I know I'm paraphrasing that, but you get the basic idea. So there's something profitable here. I just don't, I don't know what, I like there's things I want to say, but I don't know if I can be dogmatic about it. But I thought we would go back to Jeremiah 31. Just because it ends so badly, or I don't want to say ends so badly, it ends in such a depressing note that I wanted to go back to Jeremiah 31. Now, what we will be utilizing, all I will be utilizing here, is I'm going to be utilizing the Explore the Bible Personal Study Guide uh, for summer 2023 right and i'm just going to be i'm going to be reading some of what they have to say i may be adding my own commentary and just we'll just see which direction they go how they handle jeremiah 31 it, mainly this is just to reinforce remind it's just really is a just a not not such a clever way but just a way to get you back into jeremiah 31 because i want you to read it 10 times i want you to find find those 15 i will i want you in this chapter I want you I want you to really really grasp it, all right? So, we're going to be utilizing some of this. Now, this study guide begins with something a section they call understanding the context, which I greatly appreciate. Um in this study guide, especially through the book of Jeremiah and through many books, I do I do appreciate that they always have this section understand the context because it does provide historical context, textual context, So now, whether they always, sometimes I think they give the context and then they seem to ignore the context throughout the study guide, which I hear preachers do that all the time. A lot of preachers are really good at stating the historical context in the beginning or the introduction of their sermon, but then the entire sermon ignores all the context they just established. And it's it's odd sometimes, but at least it's here. So I always appreciate it. So they say, understand the context. And the context they want to provide goes from Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 1 to thirty three twenty Here is how they established the context. Are you ready? As Nebuchadnezzar began his final siege on Jerusalem, The subject of Jeremiah's message moved from judgment on Judah to God's future plans of a new day for his people. Now, this is what's perplexing to me. Why would you not save, like from just a a writing perspective, why wouldn't you save this message Uh, of God's future plans of basically of a new day for his people. Why wouldn't you save this for the, till the end of the book? I mean, from just a, a writing perspective, it's been depressing and judgment and rebuke and condemnation and God's wrath and, you know, corruption and all of these horrible and persecution. Why wouldn't you end the book maybe with two or three chapters saying, however, here's what's coming. But it doesn't. It doesn't in like between like 30 and 33. And then it goes back. And then those last few chapters, judgment upon this nation, judgment upon this nation, judgment upon this nation. And then there's kind of a saying, hey, Nebuchadnezzar took this many people. And then the next time he took this many people. And then the next time he took this many people. Oh, and by the way, Jehoiachin, that cursed king. Oh, he's treated like royalty. And then he dies. The end. <laughs> You're like, what in the world? I, maybe it's just me, but but none, none of you seems to, none of you seem to have uh, been as bothered by it as I have. But I have been bothered by it. All right. But at the but as Nebuchadnezzar begins his final stage, the subject of Jeremiah's message moved from judgment on Judah to God's future plans of a new day for His people. Now, I, what I I think I I mean. I've, I've challenged people to do this before. I've really challenged people to do this. Not that a lot of people, a lot of people love to argue, but they're never really willing to do the work. But if you really are willing to do the work, you really should go through the entire Old Testament and look for every promise for Israel, right? What are all the promises given to Israel, right? We see judgment. We see, we see, captivity, we see division, we see a lot of the judgment, right? But what are all the promises? Now, some of those promises were very conditional. If you do this, then this. If you don't do this, then this, right? We know that. But then there were these promises that seemed to be God's like, hey, I'm going to do this for you. 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 And I think everyone should have a list of all of those promises. Because if you list out all of those promises, then it just comes down to wait a minute were those promises for the actual nation or were those promises really for the church and i think any reasonable person if they're just going to if they're if they're going to set if they're willing to set aside the lens of their theology would be like these promises make no sense if they're not actually for the nation cuz this is the same nation that's being literally punished with literal historical punishments So if that was literal, the promises have to be literally fulfilled for the same people who are being literally punished, right? The the same nation. So here we go. The people were beginning to realize that they could trust what Jeremiah proclaimed was true, given that uh, in the moment they were suffering from the Babylonian onslaught, just as he had prophesied. Now, I don't know... Were they really starting to think they could trust him? Because remember, ultimately, a remnant goes down to Egypt, and they still don't listen to Jeremiah. So did they ever really start trust? Maybe there was a, a small period of time where they were like, hey, hey, Jeremiah, I mean, I mean, because I think what we, if, if I remember correctly, don't we see kind of a, a situation where, hey, Jeremiah, we are, we will listen to you until he tells them again what they don't want to hear, and then they don't listen. So did they ever really trust him? Did they ever really believe him? I don't know. It says, while their present situation was desperate, Jeremiah declared that the Lord, please note, the Lord would break their chains of bondage and deliver his people out of captivity. Now, please note, God was going to do it. They were to submit to their captors. God would take care of the situation. They weren't to fight. They weren't to rebel. They weren't to resist. They were to submit. All right, Um, the Lord promised he would raise up a Davidic king whom they would serve. Now, who was this Davidic king that God would raise up? He would comfort and heal his people and restore them uh, that which they had lost in their own land. Now, they give us some scriptures to look at, and I think we should look at them. All right. They want us to go to Jeremiah chapter 30. They want us to start in verse 8. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 8. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck, will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. But they shall serve the king their God and David their king whom I will raise up unto them. That's Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 9. Now we did stumble upon kind of a bizarre idea that I have was not familiar with. Dr. J. Vernon McGee explicitly stated, he didn't just seem to put it forth as a hypothesis. He seemed to believe that there will come a time where David will be resurrected and rule and reign. And I I don't know where it was. I, I don't know where that came from. I don't know. If I look, I'm going to look really quick over here. I have a study Bible here. I'm going to see if they even address this. If I remember correctly, they do not. But let me look here. That's Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 9. Okay, here we go. Um, David, their king, whom God will raise up unto them, refers to the future ideal king, a so-called second David, the messianic person in the line of David is paired with the Lord, their God. Okay, they believe it's reference to Jesus. It's a reference to Jesus. Now, if it's a reference to Jesus, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 9, but they shall serve the Lord, their God, and David, their king, whom I will raise up unto them, well, then when is that? When, when, is, when is when is Israel submitted to Jesus as their king? Even if you try to make it a spiritual kingdom, it doesn't seem to work. And it seems to be very literal. So then do we look for a future kingdom where Jesus rules and reign? And it has something to do primarily with Israel. Now, in the minute you say that, people will immediately throw you into a theological camp. And they, if they don't like your eschatology or that camp, they will... They will make fun of it, mock it. But this is just trying to figure out what the text is saying. It's not about picking a team. Look, verse, and then verse 10. Therefore, fear thou not, O my servant Jacob," saith the Lord. Neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. So many times these promises of return, and it's always it always sounds so permanent, and we know coming back from Babylonian captivity. Wasn't a permanent thing per se, right? First, only Judah comes back. Where's Israel? Not only that, they come out of Babylonian captivity, and by the time you open up your New Testament, they're under the the control of Rome. And when by the time you get to seventy A.D., they're wiped off the face of the earth, you know, figuratively speaking. And there's no, there's no Israel. There's no temple. There's no nothing. They're gone. So, so when, when does this? These promises come into effect. Verse 11, for I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee, though I make a full end of all the nations, whether I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Here, God's like, hey, I'm going to take care of this, but I'm not going. And look at that. I want you to just circle that. I will not make a full end of thee. God is not done with Israel. I don't know how you read this and say, no, 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 no. When God made this promise to them, he wasn't actually talking to Israel. He wasn't actually talking to Judah. No, no, no. He This is all make a reference to the church. It just makes no sense. God is not done with them. God is not done with them because of his eternal promises, because of him electing them. And that's good news for us because they didn't deserve anything, but God would be their righteousness. God will save them just as he saves us and we don't deserve it. We can trust the promises of God. We can trust his election. We can trust him saving us as being permanent and, and that God will not go back on that salvation because he did not abandon Israel and he didn't replace them either, I don't believe. And if you go to... Uh, chapter 30, verse 16. Jeremiah, chapter 30, verse 16. Therefore... All they that devour thee shall be devoured, and all thine adversaries, every one of them shall go into captivity, and they that spoil thee shall be spoiled, and all they that prey upon thee will I give for a prey, for I will restore health unto thee, and I will heal thee of thy wounds, saith the Lord, because they called thee an outcast, saying, This is Zion, whom no man seeketh after. See, God is going to take care of all the nations that has done anything to them and God's going to restore Israel verse 18 and again this is not reference to the church it has to be a reference to the nation verse uh 18 Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring again the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places and the city shall be builded up her own heap and the uh, palace shall remain after the manner thereof and out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of them that make merry and I will multiply them and they shall not be a few. I will also glorify them and they shall not be small." Their children also shall be as aforetime, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all that oppress them. And their nobles shall be of themselves, and their governor shall proceed uh, uh, from the midst of them. And I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach unto me. For who is this that engaged his heart to approach unto me, saith the Lord? And you shall be my people, and I will be Your God. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goeth forth with a fury, a continuing whirlwind. It shall fall with pain upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord shall not return until I have done it and until I have performed the intents of his heart and the latter days you shall consider it. Promise after promise after promise after promise. Why the book doesn't end with these promises, I have no idea. I have no idea. Maybe it's like, hey, here are these promises, but wait, 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 wait. Way before these promises come to pass, there's going to be punishment. There's going to be judgment. There is a curse. And it's not going to make sense. And I think maybe, and I can't say this dogmatically, maybe this is once again an example of a very important principle. You cannot judge or think about the promises of God through the lens of circumstances and negative things. Look, the book ends in a negative way. People going into captivity and the cursed king is being treated like royalty, that makes no sense. So you could then call into question God's goodness. You could call into question God's promises, but we have to be reminded we do not view the promises of God through the lens of our circumstances or what we are experiencing. God's promises are not touched. They are not diminished. They are not lessened and they're not thrown out because of the circumstances which we experience. What we have to learn to do is see our circumstances in light of the promises because the promises are are eternal. They're, 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 not, they're unchanging. Because it's just, it's so weird how it ends. Well, th- they continue here with providing context. Th- those verses right there are so important. Though Israel has been unfaithful to its covenant with the Lord, he would remain faithful to, to be their God because of his everlasting love for them. The Lord promised to bring them back to the land he had given them, even from the most remote regions. He would establish a new covenant with them. He would put his teaching in their hearts. They would all know him and he would forgive their sin and remember it no more. That is the uh, the uh, key, some of the key elements of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 40. You should definitely know that, but just remember it's made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Do not forget that. Preachers everywhere love to run into Jeremiah, grab the new covenant and just basically, I hate to say this. It's like, hey, here's Judah and here's Israel. And we slap their hands and say, drop it. That's ours. And then we take it. Say, that's all ours. We're just going to, we're going to focus on us and how we uh, somehow fit into the new covenant. What we should first do is go, wait a minute. These new covenant promises to Israel and to Judah, they haven't been fulfilled yet. No way, no how. No way, no how. So now we do know from the New Testament, Israel is in a sense set aside and blinded so that we can be grafted in. And then we graft in and we reap some of the benefits of the new covenant. Some of those benefits. Our sins are forgiven. We become the children of God. He becomes our God. Positionally, some of these truths are are obviously clearly seen. But that doesn't mean God is done with Israel, right? Because they have not experienced this yet. And then the last paragraph here. Jeremiah continued the message of hope and restoration by following the Lord's instruction to buy land and Anathoth. Though this land was in enemy territory, Jeremiah purchased it because he believed God's promises that he would restore them to their land after 70 years of Babylonian exile. Jeremiah did this publicly so that others would see that God can be trusted. Then he prayed and declared that the Lord would keep his promises because he is the creator and nothing is too difficult for him. Jeremiah looked forward to the day when the messianic branch of David would come and establish the proper worship of the Lord. And then they tell us to look at Jeremiah 33. And they really want us to look at the entire chapter of Jeremiah 33, verses 1 through 26. Uh, let me see here. Yeah, Jeremiah 33, I believe, uh, how many? Yeah, 26 verses. I don't want to read the entire chapter, but you, you may want to look at some of the promises in Jeremiah chapter 33. Maybe we will look at them at some point. But then the study guide wants us really to go back and focus on Jeremiah 31. Really, this section is on Jeremiah 31, 23 to 34. So that's what we're going to look at. Jeremiah thirty-one twenty-three to thirty-four, and we'll let's just go there and read it right now. I want to look at Jeremiah thirty-three one through twenty-six. I really would, but we I know, I know we've already covered it. Remember, we're just we're just filling in some of the gaps, some of the things that that I, I think that we need to to cover again. So let's go to Jeremiah thirty-one, and let's start in twenty-three, and let's read twenty-three to 34. Let's do that. All right. Jeremiah 31, 23 to 34. Make sure that that is the exact reference we want to cover. Yes. Uh, or 23 to 34. Jeremiah 31, 23 to 34. If I said that incorrectly, I apologize. Jeremiah 31, 23 to 34. All right. Here we go. Let's see what we can get from this. All right. Uh, okay. Oh, I just want to start reading all of it. Okay. But here we go. Jeremiah 31, 23. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as yet they shall use this speech in the land of Judah and in the cities thereof, when I shall bring again their captivity, the Lord bless thee, O habitation of justice and mountain of holiness. And there shall dwell in Judah itself and all the cities thereof together, husbandmen and they that go forth with flocks. For I have satiated the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. Upon this I awaked, and behold, and my sleep was sweet unto me. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. Please note, the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Once again, referring to them as a united nation kingdom, even though they are divided at this time, and and Israel had already been taken off into Assyrian captivity. Verse 28, and it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. In those days there shall say no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will. Here's another one of those I wills. Remember, there's 15 I wills in Jeremiah 31. I will. Now, see, at this point, they, Israel and Judah, Every time God tells them to do something, every time God tells them not to do something, they keep falling short because they're sinners. They fail, they fail, they fail, they fail, they fail. And because they cannot keep the perfect law of God, they're constantly under condemnation, wrath and judgment and suffering, which is the reality of any of us when we compare our lives to the law of God. So then God steps in and says, okay, you cannot... I will. Now, look what he says. Here we go. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Please note, house of Israel and house of Judah. I do not know how, I do do not know what else the writer could have done. I do not know what else God could have done in giving us the scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how, what, how he could be any clearer here? This is a covenant made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Like it, 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 it uses house of, it uses Israel, it uses Judah. This is not with the church. This is with them. And to even drive this point home even further, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, and the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Though I was a husbandman unto them, saith the Lord. the the past covenant they failed. The past covenant. That's clearly that that past covenant that had a lot to do. Do this and you will live. Don't do this, you will live. If you don't do it, you will die. Very much a works based. They failed. They failed. They failed. They're constantly suffering. But God's going to make a new covenant with them. Not like that one. Verse 33, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, say the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. That has not occurred. So for some weird reason, people take 33 and go, wait, wait, since it hasn't occurred, well, then it's occurring now in the church. It wasn't for them or maybe This is specifically for them. And at some point in history, Israel will be saved and God will do just as he promised. They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, but they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember, remember their sin no more. That has not happened. Verse 35, thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day and an ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea, which uh, when the waves thereof roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Now, as long as there's the sun, the moon, the stars, then it means God is that Israel is still a nation before him. You may not want to recognize them as a nation, but God still sees them as a nation and God will still do what he said he would do for this nation. It's a beautiful section and it's much needed considering how the book ends. Now let's consider how the study guide wants us to consider some of this right? First, they want us to focus on verses 23 to 26. I just read them. I'll read them one more time because repetition, reinforcing these ideas. I'm trying to, There's certain sections here of Jeremiah I want you to never, never, never forget. Well, I want you five years from now going, man, that summer of 2023, I'll never forget that those sections of the book of Jeremiah, because he reminded me of them over and over again. Here's Jeremiah 31, 23 through 26. Thus say the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as yet they shall use this speech in the land of Judah and in the cities thereof, when I shall bring again their captivity. The Lord bless thee, O habitation of justice and mountains of holiness, and there shall dwell in Judah itself and all the cities thereof together, their husband uh, together. Husbandmen, and they go; they that go forth with the flocks. For I have satiated, satiated the weary soul, and and have replenished uh, every sorrowful soul. Upon upon this I awakened, and behold, and beheld, and my sleep was sweet unto me. That's twenty three through twenty six. Now here's some of the things they have to say here. Jeremiah identified God as the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. All right, you see that in verse twenty three. When we see Lord in capital letters in the Bible, it is the English translation of God's personal covenant name, Yahweh. Now, remember, there's always that debate, Yahweh, Jehovah, you know, because they did not spell out all of God's name. Okay, we can get into that whole discussion, all right? His personal covenant name should have served as a reminder to his people of his unfailing faithfulness to them ever since he established his covenant with them at Mount Sinai. Please note, when he says, thus saith the Lord, all caps of host. Hey, he is the covenant keeping God. He's the eternal, self-existent, covenant keeping God. They say that this really focuses on the, that the promise of the covenant. All right. Uh, now you could argue, well, wait a minute. Some of that, with that covenant at Sinai, was that, would you want to remember that covenant or that that's the covenant that would remind you of your constant failure? Because in that covenant, weren't you supposed to do this, this, and this, and this, and they never live up to it? Right? The Lord promised to restore them in the land of Judah. They would recognize and declare God's blessing because the Lord of the, uh, because the Lord, their righteous God, would once again dwell in the midst of his people on the mountain of holiness, the place where the temple had stood. So God is once again going to dwell in the midst of them. God's once again going to be there. They're going. He's going to be their God. They're going to be his people. And again, it, it always seems to ring with a, a sense of permanence. Well, this permanence doesn't happen after the Babylonian captivity, which seems to imply there's got to come a time where Israel's going to be gathered back in the land. God is going to be in the midst of them, and he's going to be ruling and reigning and fulfilling all of these promises that have not been fulfilled. That's I don't know what else you can do there. They uh they would recognize and declare God's blessing because of the Lord their righteous God would once again dwell in the midst of his people on the mountain of holiness, the place where the temple had stood. The people of Judah could trust that the Lord, who used the Babylonian Empire to defeat them and lead them into captivity, could also bring the Babylonians to their knees and return uh and return his people back home. We would be more, we would be able to accomplish this because he would be able to accomplish this because he is the Lord of hosts. What's more, he would accomplish this because he's the God of Israel who maintains his faithful love for his people for thousands. So they really focus on that first part in Jeremiah 31 23 on his names. Thus saith the Lord, all capitals of hosts. The God, so the Lord of hosts, God of Israel. So you may want to break those three down today and just see the significance and what this, how this would bring comfort to them. Hey, thus saith the Lord Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel. I mean, this stresses who this is about. This stresses who this is for. This stresses it over and over and over again. I, I do like that, that emphasizing those names because uh, I, I probably wouldn't have spent the time to emphasize those names, but I think it's important, all right? Okay. Uh, he would be able to accomplish this because he is the Lord of hosts. What more? He would accomplish this because he is the God of Israel. The surety of this promise is pronounced by the phrase, when I shall bring again their captivity, there is no uncertainty in God's promise. And of course, he fulfills part of it when they come out of Babylonian captivity, but it's nowhere close to, when you look at all these promises, there's no way that fulfilled it all. All right. I think it's important. Okay. All right. Here we go. They go on to say, The Lord promised that those who populated the cities, those who farmed its land, and those who were shepherds would together inhabit the land again. This conveys that everything and everyone that had made Judah what it once was when it had flourished would be restored. Now, I cannot stress this enough over and over and over again. We have to remind this, all right? So I do love the fact that they focus on the Lord, capital of hosts, God of Israel. I do love that focus on the three kind of names there for God to help us see how that connects directly to Israel and to these promises. But I cannot stress to you again, over and over and over, it's promises to get back to the land, get the land, get the land. The land promises are repeated over and over and over. And why is this so important? Because sometimes when you say Israel never got that land, people will say, wait, 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 over in Joshua or over here, it seems that they did get the land. Even if you say they got the land at that time, one, you know, they don't keep it very long, right? They lose it. We know they don't drive out all the people they're supposed to drive out from the land. In many cases, they kind of make bargains here. In many cases, they, they they are under the control of other people to some level anyway, or they're almost paying tribute to another king over. So they don't really ever have complete control. But even if you are dogmatic and say, they got the land, it's irrelevant, Because later on, there's all these future promises that they're going to get the land. They're going to get the land. So even if they got the land, there's still new promises that they're going to get the land. And we do know this. They never got the land again after those promises. They never got the land again after those promises were made. Those promises are yet to be fulfilled. They still do not have the land. 've ne- they don't even have control over many of the holy sites in Jerusalem you could argue the only thing they have really is a wall to go cry at that's all they really have they they, they, they don't the whole thing is divided up and they're constantly having problems they don't have the land so I I, I will not accept a hermeneutic. That says, "Oh wait, wait! Land doesn't mean land there. See, that's just for the church. It just means influence. It just means power. No, it means land. Okay, that's (laughs) nobody reading this at the time would like. Hey guys, don't get excited. We're not going to get that land. It doesn't mean land. Doesn't mean land. Israel doesn't mean Israel. Judah doesn't mean Judah. Didn't you know? Okay, (laughs) it means. Oh, okay. They're going to get the land." The Lord then declared that he is a compassionate God who satisfies the weary and feeds those who are sorrowful. He certainly provided for the physical needs for those who returned to Judah from captivity. Nevertheless, what he did for them physically is a picture of the eternal quenching of the spiritual hunger and thirst of those who put their trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. All right. So yeah, we we could argue if it was or wasn't. I just think the point is these are promises, primarily for what's going to happen that never truly was fulfilled, right? And then in verse 26 of Jeremiah 31, we read these words, Upon this I awaked, and behold, and my sleep was sweet unto me. Do you see that in verse 26? Jeremiah's statement in verse 26 is unexpected for at least a couple of reasons. First, it suggests that God gave the message to Jeremiah in a dream. Up to this point, there had been no indication he was receiving messages from God in this way. However, it is not unheard of. Second, given that Jeremiah often was not pleased with what God told him to proclaim and that he often suffered for what he preached, it is noteworthy that he finally received a message from God that pleased him. Jeremiah loved the people of God. It had been difficult for him not only to witness their disobedience to God, but also the suffering that resulted from it. Consequently, his sleep had been sweet unto me when he received this wonderful word of God's promise to restore his beloved people. But see, I think in a roundabout way, I'm going to read that verse again. Upon this, I awaked and behold, and my sleep was sweet unto me. In a roundabout way, I think it was... I. Personally, not only was it a, a something true of Jeremiah, where he awaked to this wonderful message, and then his sweet was sleep, uh, his sleep was sweet unto him. Those who are actually suffering, if they cling to these promises, that there there that even in the midst of horrible circumstances and suffering, there could be a, an element, and at, at least a a portion of their sleep that could be sweet because they could trust in God's promises. But the only problem is you've got to see the promises of God and not your circumstances. And it's hard to see those promises of God because all we sometimes can see is our circumstances. So I think that that's important. All right. Then they have 27 through 30. 27 through 30. I'm going to read them again, all right? I know, we look, we are reinforcing this. We are reinforcing this. We're adding to our study, all right? 27 through 30. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beasts, And it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them, to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. In those days they shall say, They shall say no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape, and their children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth a sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. Now, verses twenty-seven through twenty-eight, this is what they have to say, their commentary. The statement the days come anticipates not only the initial return from exile, but also future time beyond their initial return. Now, this is this is an ongoing thing in the book of Jeremiah. Because, and the only thing I can say is there's clearly promises given here that are not completely fulfilled in the first return from Babylon. So... We have to look for a, a future fulfillment. It's the only way because we look, here's what we know. The punishments were literal. The return from Babylon babylon was a literal, it happened literally 70 years, which Jeremiah said it would last for 70 years. It was a literal 70 years and it was a literal return. So if all of that's literal, then any other promises that weren't fulfilled has to point to something future. I, I just don't know how else you can do. You can't go and then take those and say, nope, that part's not good. No, it, it's got to be. It's got to be. This declaration from the Lord recognizes the desolation that both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah had experienced. Both Israel and Judah had been desolate with their popula uh, had been desolate with their populations depleted and their agricultural activities greatly diminished. When these with these circumstances in mind, God proclaimed that the days come when he would repopulate Israel and Judah with people and their flocks. He would restore what had been lost, but please note, it's not just for Judah, it's for the northern kingdom as well. It's for both Verse 28, remember these words, And it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. I, the Lord used the phrase "I have watched over them." This expression must not be understood to mean that the Lord stood back and watched when the Assyrians attacked and r- ransacked Israel and Samaria, and when the Babylonians invaded Judah and destroyed Jerusalem. The idea is that God was the idea is that God was the cause of their affliction. Uh, uh, the these foreign nations were only instruments used by the Lord of Hosts to carry out His judgment, and that's true. God was the one in charge. God was the one in charge. And I know that raises a million philosophical questions, but it's just the reality of the situation, whether we understand it or not. Jeremiah was fulfilling his calling. As God's prophet, not only to pronounce judgment, but also restoration. God's justice and his redemption are perfect in their measure and both come in God's timing. He would watch over them to build them up and to plant them back in their land, just as he watched over them to uproot and to tear them down. Meaning, God was watching and in charge of all of it. All of it. Now, verses 29 and 30. Of chapter 31. In those days, they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. Strange sounding words that you may get or may not get i think you can still understand the 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 beauty of jeremiah 31 without grasping them but let's see how they handle these words let's see how they handle these words these verses take up the issue of personal responsibility for sin the prophet ezekiel jeremiah's contemporary dealt with it also in ezekiel uh, chapter 18 i believe verse 33 or chapter eighteen and chapter thirty three, it appears the nation believed that God had un- it appears the nation believed that God had unjustly punished them for their sins of previous generations. This is in Ezekiel 18:25. They used this seemingly well-known proverb to communicate this sentiment, but could not have been more wrong. They were suggesting that they were innocent, but both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Ezekiel clearly indicated this generation was guilty and deserving of the judgment they received. Everyone is accountable to God for his his own his or her own sins. Not only the sins of others. The only person in history who vicariously bore the punishment of others by suffering and dying for their sins and not his own sins was the sinless Lord Jesus. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So they say that this is a, a proverb. So let me read it again. Uh, uh, Jeremiah 31 verse 29 in those days, they shall say no more. The fathers have eaten a sour grape and the children's teeth are set on edge. That was a, a popular proverb, basically seemingly to say, hey, you know, we're we're suffering for the sins of the past generation. And he's like, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth the sour grape, he shall be set on edge. No, you're going to be, you're being held responsible for your own sins not the sins of the previous generation. That's what they seem to say. It's kind of an odd place to put it. It's an odd place to put it, but I think it's a, once again, it's trying to get them to take personal responsibility because they had a hard time seeing that they were in the wrong or seeing that they were, they saw themselves as the victim and and a hard time seeing their own personal responsibility. Right? Then we get to the beautiful words in verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers and the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husbandman unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Again, I cannot, you just need to know those words. You need to memorize those words, but you need to understand that they're to Israel and to Judah. Now, what is the the study guide going to do? What are they going to say? How quickly? Are they going to leave Israel and Judah in the dust and make it about us? Let's see. Let's see. Here we go. Here we go. We're almost done. Here we go. Throughout Israel's history. Okay. Oh, good. That's good. That's a good start. They're starting with Israel. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. Let's see what they do here the people had often renewed their commitment to the lord and his covenant exodus 34, joshua 23 through 24, second chronicles 29 through 31 and 34 33 through 3 through 7 however however sincere they may have been whenever they renewed their commitments to the lord uh, to the Lord, their follow through of the those overtures was short-lived. I cannot stress this enough. Every time they tried to renew their commitment, every try- time they tried to say, Lord, we will do this so that we will live. We will not do this so that we will not die. Like they, they, every time they did it, it was short-lived because let me make this abundantly clear. This is the theological truth of theological truths. Whenever you take God's law and you think or commit yourself to doing it, thinking you're going to do it, you never will. The law was never meant for us to obey because we cannot. It was meant to condemn and to expose our shortcomings. The more Israel tried, the more they should have said, God, we cannot, we cannot do this. You're going to have to do it for us. We can't. And I will argue God knew they couldn't. That's why the entire sacrificial system was established in the first place, because they were always under sin. They were always guilty. That's why there was a sacrifice for this and a sacrifice for this and a sacrifice for that, because the law was to show them you can't. Now you need a substitute to cover your sin, which then shows us throughout the entire history of the Bible. All the way till now, God's law is still not for us to be able to say, oh, I can do it. Or if I look to the law, I can prove that I'm saved. No, 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 no. no. It's going to show you that you can't. And guess what you need? You need a sacrifice. Not only that, you need someone who kept the law for you. Jesus Christ kept the law for you. His obedience is imputed to you by faith. And his, righteous, his righteousness is imputed to you by faith. And he paid for your failure. Every time they tried, they couldn't do it. However, sincere they were, their renewed commitments were always short lived. Therefore, the Lord declared that the days come when He would make a new covenant with Israel. Please note, He would do it. This is now something God's going to do all on His own. He would make a new covenant with Israel. A covenant renewal was not the remedy for their sin. Covenant renewal was not the remedy for their sin. The remedy for your sin is not new commitment. Are you going to try harder? No, there's something else that is needed. What what they needed was an enduring internal transformation that only the Lord himself could accomplish. Now, yes, but see, God's got to do this for them. And it's not happened yet. Yet, the problem for the people of God was that they not only refused to obey God and keep his covenant, but were incapable within themselves to do so. Jeremiah spoke earlier asking if an Ethiopian could change his skin or the leopard his spots. If not, then Jeremiah was questioning how those who had learned to do evil could somehow on their own do good. They could not. They could not. They could not. Now, here's the problem. People will take this and then say, see, as a Christian, you can't do it, but God can do it for you. Therefore, now you can obey God because God will do it for you. Well, let me once again state the problem with that logic. If God is the one who can do it for us, then we should all be perfect. No, God saves us by an imputed righteousness, not by an infused righteousness, so that I can stand before God perfect even though I'm not. And he will ultimately remove all my sin, and I will be perfect. But in the meantime, between my salvation and my glorification, I stand in this weird, almost contradictory reality. On one hand, I stand before God, perfect, obedient, and righteous. That is my position. But in practice, I'm still a sinner with a sinful nature. And I'm going to sin, and I'm going to sin, and I'm going to be continually and perpetually in sin in some way, shape, or form. But there's going to come a time for Israel where they're going to be completely changed and transformed. Just like there will come a time where I will be completely transformed. It's called Glorification. The days was coming when God would change the hearts of his people so that they would be capable of obedience. But see that it's not happened yet. And, but what they're going to do here, I, I guarantee you, they're gonna, they're gonna try to make it sound like, see that, that's us now. See, now we're capable of obedience. But if you say we're capable of obedience, to be capable of obedience would mean, Am I capable of perfect obedience? And you say, well, no, you're not perfect obedience. Well, then how much disobedience can be still present and you say that I'm obedient at all? Because if I'm guilty at one point of the law, I'm guilty of all of it. Now, with them, it's going to happen because it's something major. God's going to put the law in their inward parts. Those in the new covenant would understand what it means to live for God and have a God-given desire and ability to do so. Now, if you say you have the God-given ability to obey, well, then guess what? If you apply that to us now, then we should all be perfect, but nobody can be perfect. So we clearly have not been given this God-given ability. Israel has not been given this God-given ability. They weren't then. They don't have it now. The time will come. And when will that be? It's got to be somewhere in the future. Furthermore, unlike those in the old covenant, those in the new covenant would know the Lord. The opening words of verse 34 seem puzzling and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. Why would people not encourage one another to know God? The Lord answered, for they shall all know me from the least of them. Under the old covenant, people were a part of the Israelite community, did not necessarily know God. The Lord then stated another aspect of his new covenant. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. The words remember their sin no more means that he never will hold their sins against us. Now see now immediately he transfers it to us. This is primarily for them. There's going to come a time for Israel as a nation to fulfill this covenant that are going to be transformed internally. They're going to know God completely. They're not going to have to learn anything. And because everything, it's almost in a sense, they're going to be home. I'm not almost like being glorified. And that has not happened yet. And don't point that this somehow happens in, in, in salvation. This doesn't. This happens in salvation positionally, not practically. See, positionally, I have everything. I, I, I mean, there's. I don't need anything. I don't lack anything. Practically, I still do. As Jesus shared his Passover meal with his disciples the night of his arrest, he told them his blood would establish. The new covenant Jeremiah had foretold. The blood he shed as he died on the cross uh, secured the salvation of all who placed their faith in him. That salvation is available without exception to those who choose to receive it. Now, they don't really, go, they, they don't really stay faithful to this in, in a sense. They kind of they just immediately try to bring it over to us. Let me make it very clear. This is a covenant made directly with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It has not been fulfilled as of yet because the time of the Gentiles is currently underway. And for now, Israel has been blinded and set aside, but God is not done with them. They will all, they're still a nation before him. As long as there's the sun, the moon, the stars, every time you go outside and see the sun, the moon, and the star, you know, God is still not done. They're still a nation before God, but they've been set aside and blinded temporarily so that the Gentiles can be brought in. Now we are grafted in and we reap some of the benefits from this new covenant, right? In what way? Well, positional we are transformed and we are saved. Positionally, I'm a new creature. Positionally, all of these things are true. Practically, I'm still a sinner. However, as I go through the temporary time of right now, struggling and a sinner, and I don't have some supernatural ability to obey God's law because I'm still going to fall short, I do know the time is coming that even for me, there will come a time that there'll be no more sin because I will receive, experience full glorification. So when the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, right? And then ultimately, I will experience all of the transformation that is ultimately promised. I will experience ultimately, not now, but ultimately. Positionally, I'm exp- I, I have the, I have the benefits of that transformation now, but I haven't experienced it practically. I will ultimately experience it fully in glorification. But there will come a time that God will then fulfill all of this for Israel, all Israel will be saved. They will be restored to their land. God will be in the midst of them. He will be their God. They will be his people. And these promises will be fulfilled. There we go. That was a lot of review. We covered a lot of things. I know many will disagree with everything we just said. And I understand that. I just don't know how you steal this from Israel and Judah. I just don't know how you steal it from them. I just don't think it's fair. I don't think it's right. And I think it destroys God's electing sovereign and his everlasting love that he promised to them. All right, you can email me. News, if at yahoo.com. That's news, if at yahoo.com. Really focus on Jeremiah 29. Or at least read it four or five times. Jeremiah 31, please read that 10 times. Find the 15 I wills. And also read Jeremiah 33, looking for more of the promises God made to Israel and to Judah. That would be a really good thing to help fill in the gap as we push towards the end of this very, very important study. All right. Thank you for walking through that with me. Hopefully it was beneficial. There you go. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. Everyone, have a wonderful day. We'll be doing some more work on some of this uh, sometime later today. Thanks for listening. God bless.